Thank you for tuning into More Than a Felon. I'm your host, Liddell Hayes, T26179, the ex-felon. After serving a prison sentence of 11 and a half years, I was able to get back into society and founded my very own nonprofit organization called Operation Flame. However, society is not always the most forgiving when inmates are being reintroduced after serving prison time. Here are more than a felon, we will conduct live interviews with ex-felons who have found success within their community and are striving to change the lives of others. Join us every week where you can experience real topics from ex-felons as well as real-time phone calls with currently incarcerated inmates to get their opinion on how we can reduce the spread of incarceration. Ex-felons in society have paid their debts to the rights for freedom, but many are challenged to change the way we are viewed by public perception. For more information regarding matters such as these, please feel free to visit our website at operationflame.com. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in. Another episode of More Than a Felon. I'm your host, Liddell Hayes. And today I have a special guest who has years of experience in law enforcement. Went to community college and graduated from a university with degrees in administrative justice. My special guest, I will allow her to introduce herself. How are you doing today, special guest? Hi, hello. My name is Ebony. How is everyone doing? How are you doing today? I'm fine. And yourself? Do you want to give the listeners a little background of yourself? Okay, yes. As you stated, I do have various degrees. I graduated from El Camino College with Administration of Justice degree. I continued on to California State University of Long Beach, where I obtained my Bachelor of Science degree and Master's degree in criminal justice. And I've worked in the criminal justice field for more than 15 years. Yeah, that's a lot of that's a lot of work and a lot of experience. And you know, and, and throughout your experience there, how has it changed your life on a personal level, up close and front, dealing in the field that you operate with? It changed my life for one, it, I made it a career. So it definitely provides for my family, but I also just get to learn so many new things. I get to attend so many different trainings and talk to so many different people from a variety of whether it's the professionals or whether it's the clients. I just get to communicate with a variety array of people. So that gives you an insight into a lot of things, what's going on, you know, and understanding politics and understanding just what's going on in your communities. It just gives me an overall picture, a whole picture of understanding the system. Okay. Okay. And with that, those people that you actually spoke of and about, how do they view ex-felons? I mean, is it something that they just like to just literally make it look as if they're all bad people when they come home? Or is it more of, hey, you know what, after they've done their prison commitment or whatever offense they were for, are they one that's more liable to give them a second chance or encourage them to do better? Or is it just one of those things where they just, it is what it is type of thing? I mean, it kind of, it really depends on, you know, the school of thought, because you do have some people who believe, you know what, an eye for an eye, you know, if this 
crime is committed, eye for eye, and you have some people where you know, you know, we don't know the circumstances. Let's, you know, go more towards rehabilitation. So it really depends on a person's school of thought when it comes to that kind of question. But for the most part, in in dealing with what we're dealing with now, I do see more people leaning towards, you know, let's see why this happened. You know, let's see, okay, this person did all this time. Okay, you know, let's give this person another chance. So I am seeing more of that throughout the process of from a variety of, you know, whether it's the courts or the community or, you know, just law enforcement as a whole. I, I'm just starting to see that that shifting towards that. That's that's good. That's good. I can't advocate for everybody. I mean, there are probably some people that, you know, literally might deserve to be where they at. Because believe it or not, while incarcerated, you are, even though the word rehabilitation sometimes it has no meaning right but who do it apply to and how do you rehabilitate someone but there are some that are actually doing things in there that's positive and and invoking the individuals that come in as younger the younger generation to do right versus continue the trend and you know it used to be the strong survives type of mentality what i'm learning now the strong is not surviving no more you know, lifting weights, doing push-ups won't pay a bill. Right, uh, so right. Kind of like those that are actually seeking to educate themselves. You can become a dangerous individual, man or a woman, because you have the ability to overcome certain obstacles and make a way for yourself. And I'm glad that the fact that you mentioned that you went to school for administrative justice. And I have, let me ask you this question. Okay. I think that the Department of Corrections should change their approach after an inmate is released from doing three years mandatory parole, or should you think that there should be some type of incentive for a parolee to be released from parole earlier if he chooses to go to school? I mean, a good year and take, you know, have part-time classes or, or, or even get a trade. What are, your, what are your thoughts on it? I do think that there should be some sort of early release incentive when we're talking about people being released from you know, prison. I do think that if they do obtain some sort of degree or trade, you know, if you're one year in, you know, say, for example, truck driving school or community college or whatever trade, that there should be some kind of incentive because after that, then it's going to be work. We're going to have permission to do these things. But if you're doing good and you're completing, you know, days in school and getting your trade or degree, I do think that there should be some sort of early release incentive for that. Yeah. And, and that, while uh, I was out on parole, first and foremost, when I was released in June, June, July, August, September, I was already going from LA to Lancaster, taking community colleges, community college classes and fire technologies, as in wildland firefighting. And then okay. like, I did those classes that was going from LA to Victorville, every back and forth every day, taking additional fire classes. Wind up working for the ordinary at first, and then got my finally got my career as a wildland firefighter. Do you know, two years into me fighting wildfires for the federal government, they recommended that I do my final year of parole and I'm like, whoa, be honest with you, I felt towards that parole officer that was beyond racist. I'm not going to put any names out there or a unit, but there's people that's doing a year and they get a job, let's say working at Target 
cool. That's a job. It keeps you out of trouble. It keeps you making some money and things of that nature there. I am fighting wildfires. I'm going from state to state. And you mean to tell me because of you did when I asked this particular parole officer about it? Oh, it's because your your initial offense. And I said, okay. First of all, you didn't even call me into the office to even discuss why I feel I should be on parole. That's your first violation. And you did it without me. You snuck and did it without me. And it took another parole officer that had literally heard about me. I went down there, a regular check-in once a month. Hey, man, and I'm talking to him. Oh, you the firefighter? And I said, yeah. Brought me back there and said, man, why are you still on parole? They went in. I'm not lying. They grabbed my file, and they looked like, I see why you are still. I kind of felt when they did that and shook their head. And I felt that there was because I'm out, I'm doing good. I'm really doing, I'm doing phenomenal for myself. I'm providing for my family. But at the same time, you're going to make me do an extra year on parole. Do you know how much money that costs taxpayers? So I kind of felt that that was biased, unfair, and a little bit racist towards me as they allow other people to get off parole who have worked less time. And it's just something that just didn't sit well with me. So So did you end up having to do the the other year, the last remaining year? I did the full three years because Sacramento, with the parole officer's finding, the parole officer recommended that I be on parole, and Sacramento, they approved it. I can't be mad at Sacramento, but they just doing what the parole officer who has everyday dealing with me, they did what that officer wanted. But I just felt that, you know, I've been home, I've been state to state, no problems, not one violation, no police contact, no anything. Right. This is what you do. This is you, you want to waste taxpayers' money. It, it made me go harder in a way because I knew I wasn't doing anything, but it just made me in a way I just want to be more and more successful and just show them. You know, just like this is what y'all want. I'm what y'all looking after after all that I'm doing now. And right. I, just, I just felt that the system did me wrong. But that happened. I wasn't the only person that it happened to, and I, and I probably won't be the last. Wow. Let me ask you this question here. Okay. Before you got into the field that you're in now, what were your thoughts? You know, because we as a people have a lot of family members that's either on our way to prison. We have some family members that have been hurt that have caused other people to go to prison. It's like my mom. She had to deal with her son being involved in a triple murder and no testifying on behalf of her son. But ultimately, on the witness stand, my mom forgave, openly forgave the man Mm. for killing her son. And then she had to deal with, of course, me going to prison. So before you got your career, what were your thoughts back then? And have they changed now? Well, just just to put out the disclaimer that, you know, any comments that I make is definitely not not representative of um, the department that I work for. Prior to my current career, I did work at group homes where I worked with severely emotionally disturbed um, kids. It was a level 14 group home. And a lot of those kids, once they turned 18, they did commit some crimes where they were, you know, sentenced for a very long time. 
So even before that, I knew that I wanted to get into this career from being in high school. I worked as a student worker in the dean's office. So I've seen a lot of kids come in there for various reasons, whether they were smoking weed on campus or bringing a weapon on campus or fighting. And there was actually, you know, they were like, everybody wasn't getting expelled. They were working with the person. They were giving them second chances. And I'm like, oh, you know, this is, you know, pretty cool. It's not like, you know, you do something wrong and then that's it. So that's where I started to get into that. I wanted to work with this type of population. You know, so before getting into the career, you know, I just figured that I I didn't have that mentality that all people who were incarcerated were bad. I didn't have that because I do know that situations happen. Um, There's a variety of reasons why people are incarcerated. And then when I started working at the group home, I saw that this group, those kids didn't even have anybody. You know, they didn't have families because they were at the group home because they didn't, they have families who did not want them. So they, you know, probably had some, had identity issues or whatever. So they committed whatever. And then I even thought, okay, everybody, initially I thought, okay, everybody that's incarcerated comes from broken homes or they don't know who their family is or they don't have support. But as I got more and more into this career, I find that no, some people, there's a variety of reasons how people end up inside. Some people have the best support. Some people just got into unfortunate situations, you know, so initially I did think it was just a certain group who, you know, do whatever to get involved. But as I started learning more and and speaking with people, it's just a variety of issues and not issues of reasons why this happens. And some people really do get the tail end of the stick, like, I really didn't do nothing, but I got, you know, all this. So so initially I did think it was just a certain group of people who got arrested and went into prison. So as I got more into this career, I realized, no, it's a variety of different types of people that gets into this. Yeah. And, you know, working in those group homes, you know, sometimes like when I was incarcerated, sometimes me and my boys, we'll go outside at night and we'll sit on night yard. You know, sometimes we had these open forum conversations. There'd be a bunch of us. We might go on a basketball court. And sometimes we'll just talk about life, you know, how mm-hmm. we grew up and, and, and the mistakes that, you know, that we made. And, and, and sometimes being hired at so much and yelled at so much, it's like you couldn't do nothing right. So everything you did was wrong. So right. some of them felt that I can't never do nothing right. So everything I do is going to be wrong. And they said, like, that was the mentality that they had. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes, okay. you know, with... You know, you have some that don't have, like you say, don't have family. You got some that do, but they still wind up getting themselves caught up in, in this legal system and it's, it's hard to get out, you know, and we, and I look at it like, you know, what can we do to show and prove or we are a nation that incarcerate a lot of people, but send them home a large percentage of it with little or nothing. And sometimes self-help class is the only thing that might can get people through. But at the same time, it's, it's like, what can we do more and better to give them a chance to even be right. a of success when they come home? And I, and I know there's been some bad apples that came home to reoffend and kill people and, and do some crazy things that just out, just completely outlandish. But I just don't want the listeners to think that everybody that come home is just going to go back 
and do the wrong thing, you know. Let me ask you this. In your field, and I know, like I say, a lot of young adults don't understand. They might not understand your struggle. They might not understand your background. Because, you know, just because you went to school and got a degree and you are very successful in what you do, but do you think that some at-risk youth or some experiments might respect those that walk that fine line that they walk? They might respect them more than those of you who have had degrees and, and trying to, as they say, institute what you've learned in the school book into their lives? You know, I think with dealing with this population, it, it needs to be a variety. A lot of people probably don't have that. A lot of people probably, you know, really want to get into this field, really want to make a difference and may not have any type. Okay, they're just going to have their studies and that's it. You know, they don't have any type of, you know, family members. They probably grew up where they didn't have to, you know, experience any or know anybody that experienced any thing, any type of incarceration. So you have those. And then you have those people like, look, I went to school over here. I just didn't make those kind of decisions. But I, you know, because I went to school in this area or I grew up in this area, you know, I know. So you have a variety of different people that get into this type of field. And you know, it's just very important that when you're dealing with this population that you really understand what you're, not what you're getting into, but what, you know, you just really need to understand the population and really understand where they come from, what's going on with them. Your degree is not the only thing that's going to help you understand you. If you don't have those experiences or know anybody that has been through this, you really need to get out there and just talk to these people, talk to them, get to know what their background, what, what was going on with them so that you can understand, oh, okay, you know, that'll help you because if you just have this one-sided, or this is what the test books say, this is what I'm going to do, that's not going to work. You really need to engage these this population. And you will definitely learn a lot just from engaging in the population. Let me ask you this. When you're at work, do you feel a threat when you're dealing with ex-offenders or, I mean, how do you think they act towards you? I mean, just with, you know, my interaction with this population, I can just say that I come from a point where I keep it real. You know, I'm going to be very upfront, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything, but, you know, like, again, just the communication, because anything that we discuss, whether it's negative or positive, you know, you would definitely understand where I come from. So I don't feel any type of intimidation. I've worked in a variety of institutional settings. And, you know, to me, the main thing is the communication. I mean, it definitely comes down to you cannot have any type of fear working in this population because they would definitely smell fear on you. Whether you're in an institution, whether you're in the office, because your goal is to get them to get off of what whatever they're on to be law-abiding citizens. And you need to make sure you have a plan to, you know, communicate that to them and have the resources to do so as well. And that's one of the most ultimate things, the resources. And because I interviewed someone that was just being released after doing 24 years. 
And I asked him uh, the same particular question about the parole for ex-offenders, and he mentioned the resources. Where are you going to get this from? Where are you going to get that from? And I am telling him, oh, that's easy. I think that the state has plenty of funds. It costs $70,000 just to incarcerate one man or one woman per year. Some of that could be the resources for y'all to come home and get housing. To me, once they give you housing, you should have no really, no no reason. To, I mean, transportation, of course, they can give you tokens or whatever. The resources, like you said, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's crucial to people right now. Once right, you have the available resources, they can get some of the things that they actually need. And that right there is, is, is crucial in society today. I just feel that those of us that have been incarcerated, we live our life on pause and time refused to wait. So it's like being coming home to a world, a technology-driven world where we don't know much because they're not going to let us have computers. Not a lot of us will have access to computers. But right. a lot of things that some of us can get caught up with. And the state is doing a whole, they, they're charging so much money per inmate. I mean, but none of that money they're charging per inmate is for them to be real. I mean, I just, that's just me. I just, I'm not trying to be, ultimately biased, but I do have some type of, you know, thing against for, I advocate for ex-felons. Now, let me ask you this question here. Okay. Now, certain states, they have given ex-felons, they're restored their right to vote uh, okay. back and kill them. But what was your thoughts on that? I believe that as long as no one is in custody, that they should be given an opportunity to vote. If you're an ex-felon, if, definitely if you've you know, paid your debt to society. You should be provided that opportunity just like other opportunities are provided to those who have paid their debt to society. At this point, as long as you're not in any type of custody, incarcerated, because of course you can't physically go vote, I think that whether you're a felon or ex-felon, that you should be allowed the right to vote. Yeah, that, I mean, that's right. Yeah, I know certain states didn't have that. And one of my uncles was involved with a criminal offense years mm-hmm. and years ago. And he lost his right to vote. Kind of felt like, wow, how is it that you can lose your right to vote, but I still had to pay taxes? <laughs> so I guess it just looked things that were, you know, and, and, and being an ex-felon, there's already, to me, there's a lack of jobs for certain people. And sometimes everybody don't have to have a college degree or uh, some type of trade to get into some of these jobs. It's more of who you know. But it's like, and this is why I try to install in young people. The minute that you're incarcerated for anything, you're now taken out of that pool that now you have to find you know, the odds and end jobs that can get you by because you're going to be overlooked for a whole lot. So I just... I said, I just, my views might be one of no, those. I mean, your views is on point because I even think about too, you know, even when I was in high school, you know, we were taking wood shop and auto mechanics, you know, students were taking actual trades. So no matter what happened, they learned this skill. You know, they didn't have to wait until they turned 30 or whatever. They learned this skill in high school and, you know, we don't have that anymore. We don't have, I mean, some schools are, are going back to it, but there was a period of time where we didn't have any of that. It was just your regular classes. You know, I remember the machine wood shop where the, you know, the students are in there making, you know, those wood, whether it's their name or whatever that, you yeah. know, we yeah. just, 
kind of did away with that. And, and I think even now with, you know, the generations that we're in, you know, like times are changing just how everything is. The way we grew up is not the way the kids are growing up now. So a lot, you know, a lot has changed. Okay. And before we go, let me ask you this question. And this is from, like I say, this is from your perspective and from your point of view. But before I ask the question, I'm asking this because I feel, like I say, and this is just me, I feel that citizens of society have been trained to only see one side of an ex-felon. But when you go to court, there's two sides. You've got the prosecution and you have your defense. And there's one judge, which is the judge, you know, in between the two parties. Mm-hmm. And once one side speak, the other side get to speak. So they get a chance to defend themselves or try to prosecute the other. As we know, every society is trained the one-sided. Well, he's an ex-felon. This is an ex-felon. And it's more like when I'm gonna take me, when I did get it, when I got arrested in the holding tanks and everything, you can literally see everything that I was charged with on the news. They had it all young black male committed armed robbery over here, 20-year-old Adele Hayes, and I'm sitting there watching it. So now, let's fast forward over 20 years. 20 years later, it's not being broadcasted. Anything I'm doing, anything I've done, it's not being broadcasted. I've helped ex-felons get careers, permanent employment for the Forest Service. A nonprofit organization, I spoke at schools, probation department. I've done a lot to try to help individuals within our community escape some of the things that are actually hurting us. I've done so much. I'm not looking for accolades. But what I want members of society to understand is we're not all bad people based on something that happened years ago. And my question to you is, what advice do you have, not only just for the listeners, but for members of society who might only be trained to think one way? Or what would you say to those about ex-offenders who are now home from custody? You know, a lot of stuff is just, you know, research. Because if you do a lot of research on those who have been released from prison, who are ex-felons, you will see that a lot of individuals have made an impact on society, have definitely contributed, whether they've started their own business, or, you know, working, you know, the, the issue is this person have not reoffended. So looking at this person differently, you know, should not happen because this person has not reoffended. This person is just like any other law abiding citizen. This person have already paid their debt to society. So there should not be any different views on someone who has paid their debt to society who is now a law-abiding citizen, who is now working or owning their own business, just being productive. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we want. Like I say, I'm not going to sit here and, you know, vouch for an idiot. You know, like I say, we make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And once you came home from that, and there are people that do bonehead things. It's just like, really? You, You have to do that? But for the, a lot of us, we, we come home and we, you know, and we try and, and we face it. We see it. But the best thing for it is I, I can only speak for me. I put myself in a position to know that there's going to be some discrimination when you go home. You might come across some 
racist things. And just because you're not, you know, you're not using a racial derogatory word doesn't mean that what you might say or might have done doesn't show you no know, racist remarks or, you know, but mm-hmm. I knew and I felt that it was going to come. So when it did happen, it's like a checkpoint. I told you this was going to happen. So mm-hmm. I dealt with it. I dealt with it while I was there. I prepared myself for the heartache, for the pain, for the setbacks. And I had to understand one thing. It's like when I first, one of the first times walking into prison, you know, you get to complaining about something. You had dudes that have been down 18, 20 years. Like, man, shut up. Suck that up. Right. Shouldn't have came, came to jail. And it's like, when you look at it, like, fool, who are you talking to? But I can see where he's coming from because more likely you're right. Don't put yourself in a predicament and you're going to complain about certain things because first and foremost, you did it. Right. Or you put yourself there. So we have to deal with that. We thank you. We thank you for your time, El. All right. You are so welcome. Yeah. We And I hope that, you know, the listeners were able to take in some things from you, from your point of view and, and, and your honest opinion. And it's always good talking to members of law enforcement because we have our issues with some. And, right. it's, and, it's, and it's like, we just want things to be treated fair. Don't, you know, for some law enforcement, don't abuse, don't abuse your power. You right. Know, but, and, I, and I respect what you do. You know, and anybody that's making an honest living for themselves, I don't care who you are, what you are. I commend you on that. We thank you for stopping by. And, and, and this is actually awesome. I like what you're doing. This is, you know, with everything that's changing in the communities, this podcast can reach so many people that don't understand you know it'll be definitely informative for people that don't that don't understand what the felon is capable of accomplishing you know so this is definitely and this is what we in the law enforcement community want we want people who's doing good for themselves okay you messed up you you know got committed on this you know you completed your time we want to hear these good stories you know this is actually very good Oh, thank you. We appreciate you. You know, sometimes we might have to work hand in hand to make things yes. better, you know, and, yes. and, and there's going to be some open conversations between me and other officials in law enforcement on how we mm-hmm. can get a better understanding and not either abuse one, abuse, you know, the other, you know, if, right. it's, if it's a mutual understanding, it's a mutual agreement, you know, it's, you know, it, things can work better. We can try to ease the tension. Well, I thank you, El. And once again, this is this is your boy. Thank you. This is your boy Liddell Hayes for more than a felon. Tune in for more episodes and interviews from people, not only just in, in the uh, community, we will be interviewing some people that's currently incarcerated. You no know, listeners can listen in and, and, and tune in and, and, and take things from other people's perspective. So we thank you, everyone. Thank you. And we'll talk to see you guys later. This is your host again, Adele Hayes, T26179, The Ex-Felon. Thank you for tuning into More Than a Felon, where we will continue to discuss daily issues that affect our communities and highlight the achievements of ex-felons who are now gainfully employed, own their own businesses, or those currently seeking future employment. 
we appreciate you for listening to the stories of those searching for a second chance in society. Subscribe to our podcast here at More Than a Felon. Join our Facebook group at More Than a Felon and visit our website at OperationFlame.com for more positive stories such as these you've heard.